why a series on prayer? Why a church text that focuses on prayer? Scratch below the surface of most people's Christian life and they will admit to finding prayer uh, boring, hard work, not very fruitful. We know we're not supposed to say that, so we don't most of the time for the fear of being judged by some self-righteous, supercilious, religious Christian. So we keep our thoughts to ourselves about prayer. Some of us may feel rather more satisfied than that. We do our prayers, thank you very much. I always say my prayers. But even those who do their prayers, if you scratch below the surface, the motivation so often is guilt, and they develop a smug, self-righteous air about them that's equally as far from the life of Jesus as those who hardly pray at all. And that's the point, really, for me, that finding people who have a vibrant, fruitful, engaged and dynamic prayer life, like Jesus, is hard. You may know someone like that, but it's the exception rather than the rule. Yet for Jesus, this kind of praying seemed more necessary than the air that he breathed. I have to eat. It isn't too many hours before my body craves the food that it needs. You're no different. You have to eat too. If you haven't eaten this morning, then even these words will make you feel more hungry than you were already. We put off eating sometimes because we're too busy or too preoccupied or too unorganized to eat. But not for too long. Soon the ache will grab our attention once again. Soon we will be aware that our concentration will begin to lapse and our energy will deplete because we need to eat. It sustains us, nourishes us and keeps us alive. Weird then that Jesus would say to human beings who knew that their most basic need was food and drink, that he should say to them, man, human beings, people, do not live on bread alone. What does he mean? Is he suggesting that there is something more important, more significant, more sustaining, more nourishing for our lives than food itself. Yes, and you don't need to read the stories of Jesus for very long to discover what it was. What was it that nourished him, that sustained him at a deeper, more important level than food? What was it that he couldn't do without? What was it that was grabbing his attention all of the time? What was it that was drawing him? What was the craving that was building through every moment of every day? It was to be with his father. It's like it's almost all he wanted. Whenever there was a moment, he would be off. And when that moment to be off was interrupted by some good task, like uh, an opportunity to teach, uh, an opportunity to heal, he would still, as soon as that task was over, look for it with even more persistence than he had hitherto. He needed it. Like we might say, I need to drink and I need to eat. 
The same longing is reflected in the Psalms that we'll uh, read about in several months' time when we get to Psalm 42. And, uh, And there it says this verse, this next verse here. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants, yearns for you, O God. Now I don't know what it's like for you at 2010, the first few days of, but my suspicion is that there are many, many yearnings in our lives that are deeper and stronger than this one. That would be my suspicion. And that's maybe because it's true for me too. And yet, we see in the psalm, and we see this in in this glimpse of, of Jesus slipping away in the ways that he did, that there's a craving for something more, for something richer and deeper than you and I often will crave after. And so, no wonder, maybe, They said, Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to long for, to crave for time with Father God like you do. Teach us to live in such a way so that everything that we do, the energy that we have, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we feel, the way that we respond, comes out of this depth of relationship with being with God you. Yet we find sustaining a personal prayer life to be one of the hardest things about our Christian journey. And we find as a church sustaining a dynamic corporate prayer life one of the hardest things about walking with Jesus together. And so there's this gap, this gap between our reality And what we read of in these verses, there is this gap between our experience and what the Bible would tend to suggest could become more our norm. Trouble, of course, is that the moment we start talking about the gap, the gulf just seems too too big, too wide. How can we move from here, if you relate to being here like I do, over to here somewhere? How do we make that journey? Is the gap too wide, the chasm, the valley too deep for us even to begin to cross it? And so we start reading books about prayer. And we start listening to uh, sermons about prayer. Heaven forbid. And we start hearing all these uh, quotes from great prayers. And their lives seem such a world away from ours. And instead of being inspired by it all, we are overwhelmed by their greatness. And our inadequacy is exposed. When Jeff Lucas wrote a book recently on prayer, he opened it like uh, this. The books on prayer that thrill and terrify me are often well written, carefully researched, meticulously punctuated, and peppered with multitudinous Bible references. My problem is that people who are quite good at praying usually write books on prayer. A few pages and I feel like a 25 stone arthritic in a Manchester United shirt. Kicking a ball around with David Beckham. Not a super feeling. Intimidation runs to dangerous levels when the book talks about any kind of extended prayer. By extended, I mean, well, anything over 15 minutes or so. I pore over the biographical details of some jolly chap who followed Jesus 500 years before anything was on television. 
who passed his days in thrilled solitude, and who perhaps was in the habit of crawling into a hollow log for just three days of uninterrupted intercession. This log burrowing is supposed to cheer me up and encourage me to head for the woods myself, but instead I immediately feel the need for a conference call with the Samaritans. I wouldn't last 30 minutes in the bowels of an intercessory tree, and the only deep ministry that would result would be the wood lice investigating my underwear. Start talking casually about the devotional life, and I get that feeling that I used to experience when my school report included the comment in red biro, could do better. And so rather than inspired, we're overwhelmed. Rather than be encouraged, we're kind of trapped by the sense of gulf that there is between where we are and where we think we're supposed to be. And somehow we need to move out of this uh, uh, locked rut that I find myself in, that maybe we find ourselves in. Where somehow there are these spiritual giants, few and far between, that come up on the horizon from time to time. And their prayer life takes them to heaven and back before breakfast. And then the rest of us, whose prayer life is more reminiscent of the Wright Brothers aeroplane, occasionally lift off but only to crash to the ground moments later in a bit of an ugly mess. We'll not move there by gimmicks or by persuaders or gentle manipulation. So we won't be giving out extra club card points for coming to the prayer meeting. There'll be no cuddly toys to those who get three answered prayers before the end of January. We need something deeper, something more, something much more profound. Something that creates in me, in us, an insatiable desire for God, for more of Him, that isn't quenched. And the more I get of Him, the more thirsty, the more hungry I am for more. Something that stops me through the day with a craving more demanding to be quenched than thirst itself. Why? Because I refuse to live small. I refuse to live shallow. I refuse to live anything but out of the depths of God's presence. We need the movement of God's Spirit to cleanse us, to quicken us, so that we dare not settle for anything less. Lord, teach us to pray so that it punctuates our day and empowers every moment. I can't teach us to pray I can't do it myself. I can do all the theory. I can do however many sermons on prayer we might do before we get to the end of this marathon. But what's the point in that? I need to learn to pray. I need to learn to be with God. To be with Him. To sit there and not be more conscious of the slowness of my watch than his presence. I need to sit there and not be so full of my own thoughts and my own words that I haven't learnt to hear him speak. I need to sit there, or it doesn't have to be sitting, walking, standing, running, jumping, whatever it is for you, and receive from God the very life I need to live. Because let's face it, there's a reality gap, isn't there? 
And it doesn't matter what aspect of our Christian life we talk about, we face the same reality gap. So, for example, you learn a lot about face sharing. You go on one of Julie's courses, and you feel very equipped. And somehow, we feel very equipped, but still quite disempowered. We know we should have the boldness, but somehow it isn't there. We know we should have the faith, but somehow it just seems so small. And there's this gap between what we feel we should be, what we're longing to be, and what we find we actually are. Is that just me? No. And it doesn't matter. Bible reading, memory verses, we we know what we should be, and yet there's this gap. What we must not do through these months is just perpetuate the gap. Agreed? That that blesses nobody. Makes us all feel more useless than when we started. And God believes in us. Otherwise he wouldn't have called us. So I've got a lot to learn. And maybe you have too. And the other tendency is that we kind of we kind of learn it as a church, uh, and we kind of think, well, okay, if we can learn as a church to pray, wouldn't that be a cracking thing? Yeah, I think it would. But actually, is it possible for our praying as a church to be more dynamic than the sum of our individual prayer lives? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, there is a dynamic about coming together that is different and more powerful and more engaging than when we're praying on our own. So Jesus said, don't just pray on your own. In fact, when two or three come together, there I am in the midst, bind and loose stuff in heaven and it will be done on earth. A lot of power when we pray and agree together. No doubt about that. But we cannot come out of empty, shallow prayer lives into our corporate uh, place of prayer and think we'll have liftoff, can we? Probably not, unfortunately. Which means that actually the journey that we're on is is much more about you and me at a personal level as much as it might be about us when we're together. And that's what makes it so hard. Because when I'm on my own, when I'm most really who I am, I most easily fall into what I shouldn't be. Is that just me? No. So, how are we going to journey together so that uh, as we go through week on week, we are encouraging one another so that that encouragement spills into our ordinary everyday lives? So tomorrow morning, or whenever it is tomorrow, when I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for God, I'm going, I'm not here by myself. I'm with 200 or so people, part of our community, part of our church, who, who, who are reaching for God today. And we're in it together even when we're on our own. That's something of the journey that I want us to be on together. To save us from learning more about prayer rather than praying. 
to having so many techniques that actually become barriers rather than enablers to prayer. To have so many things in our toolbox that keep us distant from God, perhaps make us feel good because we're ticking a few boxes, but are equally as superficial and equally as shallow as some of the other things we might find ourselves, I might find myself doing. And so there's a journey. Would you turn with me um, in your Bibles to Philippians? Uh, Philippians chapter uh, chapter 4. Somebody find the page number for us. Sorry? 1180? 1180. <laughs> I was looking 1180 in my Bible and couldn't understand why I couldn't find it. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord, this is verse 4, always, always, always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So, do not be anxious about anything. This is a big verse on prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayers and petitions, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, Paul, I am anxious. As I go into 2010... There are things that I'm anxious about. And many of us have come this morning going, New Year, I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about that circumstance. I'm worried about my finances. I'm worried about my relationships. I'm worried about my job. Will I have a job? Will I get a job? I'm worried about whatever it might be. It would not take us long to fill the screen up with our worries. They are always very near the surface for most of us. If we can't find anything to be anxious about, that usually makes us anxious in itself. Because there is a certain comfort in our state of anxiety, such as the way that we live. Into our anxiety comes this command. Not a suggestion, it's not a maybe you'd like to think about this, but a do not be anxious. Do you mean I have a choice whether to be anxious or not? Yes, a choice. A choice. Most of us, most of the time, live as if anxiety is something that happens to us over which we have no choice or control whatsoever. Paul seems to be saying there is a choice, so don't. Don't. Don't be anxious in everything by prayer and petition. In everything by prayer and petition. Well, once in a while, maybe. With thanksgiving, well, sometimes, yes, but quite often frustration at unanswered prayer. With everything, present your requests to God. What do we do with those verses? What do we do when the Bible talks about things that are beyond our experience? 
Now, if this is the way that you are living, if you are rejoicing always, if you're always gentle, if you're confident that the Lord is near in a way that you can feel it, if you're never anxious about anything, but in everything, offering your prayers and petitions, you can just tune out for a few minutes. But for the rest of us, what do we do with this verse? That doesn't quite match the way that we live. You see, we have a choice. Is our own current experience the greatest reality? We can choose to decide that it is. We can choose to say, well, the way that I experience my life right now is the greatest reality, the greatest truth. Therefore, Paul was deluded, or the Bible is wrong, or it can't quite mean it the way that it does, and so I reinterpret what I read in these verses in order to fit my own experience. That's a choice. And we can choose to respond that way. Or, much more courageously and positively, I would suggest, we could choose to say, actually, there is a greater truth than my inadequate human experience. This is God's word, therefore this is a greater truth than the truth of my experience. And if that's the case... I don't need to lie about my own experience. For heaven's sake, let's not do that. I don't need to say, therefore, my experience is that I'm never anxious and I do not worry. No, of course, that would be, that would be ridiculous. That would be false. That would be a lie. But we can say, if this is the truth, if this is the greater reality, then can I move my experience towards this greater reality? Yes or no? The answer must be yes, otherwise the Christian faith is totally pointless and worthless. Agreed? So I can choose. When I come to these verses that do not match my experience, I can choose to say, okay, somehow I need to reinterpret these to match my experience. Or I can choose to say, I need to adjust, to journey, to change my life, my attitudes, my responses, my beliefs, my ways of living, so that my experience moves towards this greater reality. Now, if you're abundantly happy with anxious living, then don't worry about it. Stay happy with your worry, if that's not a contradiction in terms. In terms. But if somewhere deep inside you if somewhere deep inside there is a longing for a different, fuller, richer way, then journey. Then journey through 2010 towards this richer, fuller way that verses like these call us and encourage us. Notice what it says for this morning, right there in the middle. That phrase, prayers and petitions. Now, a petition is when we ask God for something. It's an asking prayer. Now, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, I'm a good Baptist, I would bet, if I was, that 95, 97, 98, 99% of your prayers are asking God for something. Your prayer journal if you have one, and I would encourage you to, so quickly and so easily becomes reduced to a list of requests and hopefully 
answers. Is there anything wrong with that? No, absolutely not. Is that not important? No, it certainly is. They are very important, both to you and God, so keep praying. But notice, if most, if not all, of our praying is summed up with the word petition, then what on earth is prayers and petitions? What's the prayer? If it's all petition. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul says, do prayers and petitions. And if most of our prayers are petitions, what on earth is the prayer? Could it be that we have made prayer something that it isn't, i.e. synonymous with petitions, and then complain that it just doesn't work? What if prayer is more about God's work in me than it ever is about God's work in someone else or in something else? What if it's more about me? You see, when Paul wrote these verses about do not be anxious, is he writing them because because through prayer he's in such a good place that he knows he has nothing to worry about because his life is peachy? You will know that Paul's in prison. You will know when he writes these words that he's under threat, maybe of his very life. So he hasn't broken through in his circumstances. Paul is not saying, do not be anxious, because when you pray, it all gets fixed. If he is saying that, he's the deluded one. But there's no suggestion here that he is. The prayer for Paul was not changing the circumstances. And don't get me wrong, I believe wholeheartedly that prayer does change circumstances. Hey, we've got a long journey. Don't take one thing and exclude everything else. For Paul, prayer was not removing the constraints. But for Paul, prayer was a work that was so deep in him, he could say in the midst of all kinds of circumstances that would normally induce worry and anxiety, hey, I don't need to be anxious. Because the work of God in me is so deep, is so real, He is so certain, He is so secure, His foundation will not ever change. I do not need to be anxious, but I can always rejoice because He is always with me. Prayer about God's work in God's presence in me. Prayer about something inward, way before it's about anything outward. And then this incredible verse that uh, was tucked away in the middle of what Mary read to us some moments uh, ago. And before we get there in John chapter 17, before we get there, we just need to remind ourselves about God for a minute and who he is and uh, what he's like because it helps fill us in. You see, God reveals himself to us as a God who is always perpetually in relationship. In the beginning, God, that's one God, singular. That's why the Christian faith is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. The Lord our God is one, says the uh, Bible, indeed says the the long-standing prayers of Jewish tradition. But very early on, as in the next few verses, then God said, let us. And so even in the very beginning of the Bible, and you know all this because we've talked about it uh, several times, I I hope and I'm sure, but just as a reminder to, to see how important it is. This one God, who is totally and always one, is in fact more than one. I don't know much Hebrew, but you can have a plural in Hebrew that means two, and you can have a plural in Hebrew that means more than two. This is more than two. 
So there's one God and there's more than two of us. Now, don't try and understand that because it's not understandable to our human minds. One eternal living God in three persons. Why do we believe it? We believe it because it's there in the Bible. And we haven't got time to go through a, a, a whole a, a sweep through the Bible of, of how the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is developed. But just to give us a short insight about what happens at Christmas time when Jesus came and then in the stories about Jesus. Because the stories about Jesus all emphasize, without exception, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, because we were born in the West rather than in the East, we tend to emphasize the fact that God is one God. If we were in the East today and were following Jesus in the culture of most Eastern churches, we would be emphasizing the fact that our God is three. So by virtue of where we got born, we emphasize one over the other. Now the trouble with us emphasizing uh, uh, that God is one, well it's a good thing in one way because we're against polytheism, we don't believe in many gods, there is one God, ruler, sovereign over all, all that is good and true and we need to hold on to that all of the time. But if we're not careful, we lose the dynamic of who this one God is. This one God is three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So when we read about Jesus coming, what do we read about? We read about the Father sending a Son. Jesus' birth isn't that this one God left heaven and turned up on earth. It never says that. Heaven was not empty. It talks about a Father sending a Son. When we talk about Jesus' life, it's about the Son who is doing what? His own work? No, the Son who's doing the Father's work. And that's how Jesus would talk about it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, I don't do anything by myself. I just do what the Father asks me to do. I do His work. The Son is surrendering to the Father. And no more so than when Jesus dies. And Jesus says, okay, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. A story of a father and a son. Jesus didn't come back to life by himself. The Bible says that God, the father, raised Jesus to life. A story of a father and a son all the way through. And if we emphasize one God, we we miss the father, son, and then the Holy Spirit who comes from both the Father and the Son, who comes from the Father and testifies to the Son. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, continues to unfold. But the emphasis is around this relationship, this dynamic interaction between God himself. Now the language is a bit weird because it's hard to explain something that only God can know and understand. It's like this perfect, unbroken, unblemished relationship that always was, and then through the coming of Jesus, we we see it unfold, we see it open out, so that we can get glimpses that that in the heart of God is this interaction between Father, Son, and uh, Spirit. And we know that God is love, at the heart of this relationship is Love, a loving relationship, not static or theoretical, but dynamic and active. What's all that got to do with prayer? Well, the answer is this. Jesus says, my prayer in John chapter 17 is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, that's you and me, also be in 
us. Us. I think that phrase is almost the most remarkable phrase in the whole of the Bible. That there should be, at the heart of the universe, this deepest, most secure, most satisfying, most filling, utterly complete relationship within God that there ever could be, and you are invited to join it. Prayer is the great invitation to enter in to the very heart of God himself. Theologians talk about the open trinity because this this relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is open, inviting you to join them, to be part of the journey with them, inviting you to share it with them. Does that make you God? No, not at all. Does that mean you can share in who God is and what he's doing? Absolutely. Julian of Norwich uh, said, the trinity is our everlasting Lover, this love that has held the universe together invites us, draws us in. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, talked of uh, Jesus being the lover of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly. This intimate drawing into the heart of God himself. Prayer is that invitation. He who prayeth well, loveth well. And this language of love, St. Augustine, who actually was the one who made us think more about one God rather than uh, three, he, he talked about whole prayer is nothing but love, drawn into this open relationship with God. And suddenly it's so different. Suddenly it's so different from me sitting down with my list of needs and wants and saying to God, will you do this for me like some kind of petulant child? And yet missing the invitation to be gathered up in the arms of God. Missing the invitation to share in the very life that flows within God himself. Sharing, missing the invitation to share in everything that God is and all that he does. Because I'm caught up in my ordinariness, in my busyness. Richard Foster puts it like this. He he is inviting you and me Inviting you and me to come home. To come home to where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long we've been in a far country. A country of noise and hurry and crowds. A country of climb and push and shove. A country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home. Home to the serenity and peace and joy. Home to friendship and fellowship and openness. Home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. We do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength where we can feast to our heart's delight. Invites us into the study of his wisdom where we can learn and grow and stretch. Invites us into the workshop of his creativity where we can be co-laborers with him, working together to determine the outcome of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found, where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It's also the place of deepest intimacy where we know 
and unknown to the fullest. Could it be that this gracious gift of God that enables us to enter His very heart has been reduced to a list of our own consumer needs? Have we made it something it never was and wonder why it doesn't work? There is, of course, a sting in the tail of it all. Because to pray is to change. And whilst we all might love that idea of coming home into the heart of God, we're not all certain in all of our lives that we want to change. But I can't enter in unless I change. I cannot move nearer his purifying flame without being purified. I cannot move closer to his love without his love overwhelming mine. I cannot move nearer his heart and keep my heart the shape I choose it to be. And so we keep our distance more often than not. Maybe shouting my needs at God is easier because I don't have to draw too close to Him then. Maybe if all I do is shout up into heaven and and hope that He'll hear me, I, I don't need to worry too much about the closeness, the nearness, the intimacy, the change, the challenge. Small children can be cantankerous. Did you know that? Small children can fuss and confume. Small children can cause mothers and fathers to long for the end of the holidays. Small children can develop an angst in a matter of moments for what they probably hardly know. And many of us will have been faced with a child consumed by an angst they do not understand and they cannot get rid of by themselves. And you as a parent have used every tool in your toolbox to lift your child out of their angst and nothing works. And then an inspired thought, an inspired moment. You forget about the fight. You forget about the demands for obedience that you've been making unsuccessfully for the last hour or more. You forget about the threats of punishments and that if you don't do that, I'll do this. The withholding of pleasures. And you scoop your child in your arms and you begin to sing. I don't know as a parent whether you've discovered that as a parent to your child you can sing. It's got nothing to do with whether you're on key or in tune. It's got nothing to do really with the words either. The words don't matter anything like the sentiment your singing conveys. Singing has a strange effect on angsty children. Muscles relax. Raised voices quiet. Troubled spirits are eased in an embrace and a song. And you may have discovered as a parent the power of singing. It doesn't work when they're 16, unfortunately. You may have discovered the power of singing. The Bible says that the God of heaven 
He's mighty to save, and yeah, he's with us, and he takes great delight in us. The God of heaven will quiet you with his love and will rejoice over you with with singing. With singing. With singing. Do you know what? That's when true prayer begins. When we allow him to gather us in his arms and we let him sing over us. Let's pray. May they be in us. The great invitation to be with him, to be in him. The great invitation to be his. And so we have a choice. We can be happy where we are. Or our whole being can cry to God, I want that. I need that. Even more than the food I eat, I need to be in Him and He in me. If you want to go on a journey, a journey that takes you out of the rut that you've been in, a journey that says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move towards this greater reality. I'm not going to settle for where I am. That This greater reality seems maybe a long way away, but I want to begin to walk towards it. I want to live not shallow, but deep. I want to, to live in Him, not just shouting at Him, or pleading with him, or demanding from him, but to live with him, and in him, he in me, and me in him, like Jesus, getting away, because I need it, it gives me energy and life, it makes me fully alive when I'm in him, and with him. That's the journey that you want to be on, I'm just going to invite you right now, just to stand where you are, as a sign to God, I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm not staying in 2010 where I am. I'm moving. I'm coming towards you. I'm heading towards you. I'm moving. I invite you to stand just now. And Lord, in our standing, we just say to you, we're not going to sit in that same place. We just say to you, we're willing for our, our minds to be changed so that we think differently. We're willing for our hearts to be molded so we respond differently. We're willing to lay down attitudes that have held us bound and captive. We're willing to put aside our religiosity, our do's and our don'ts. And we want to learn to seek you afresh. We want to learn to be found in you as your word promised. We're thirsty. We're thirsty. Make us more thirsty 
so that we will do everything in our power to quench that thirst that only Jesus can quench.